HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The James Beard Foundation is a nonprofit with the mission to celebrate, nurture, and honor chefs and other leaders, making America's food culture more delicious, diverse, and sustainable for everyone. And right now, it's working to respond to the dire situation the food and beverage community is in due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Restaurants, bars, and other independent food and beverage operations are often on the front lines of community revival. The majority of culinary community businesses have less than 500 employees, but collectively this industry generates $1 trillion a year, 60% of which is pumped back into their local business communities. To help bring swift economic relief to these essential businesses, the James Beard Foundation launched a fund to provide microgrants to independent food and beverage businesses in need. You can donate at jamesbeard.org relief. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Melissa Fuster from Gastronomica, the journal for food studies in Fort Corley. The local food movement has been criticized for its overwhelming whiteness. How has the movement responded, responded to these critiques? And what are the implications of these responses? Shaya Kolavali confronts the whiteness in Kansas City local food movement, examining diversity work and discourses of privilege and power. Shaya is the, is the assistant director at the Center for Equality and Social Justice at the University of Kentucky. Her research intersects whiteness, race, and class-based inequality, specifically exploring politics of sustainable, equitable redevelopment in U.S. cities. Welcome, Shaya. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. So um, let's begin with learning more about your work in general in the area of social justice and equity. What drew you to this area? Yeah, um, I'll take a step back and mm -hmm. talk a little bit about myself because my research is, I think, very personal. I think as a lot of social scientists approach topics that um, matter deeply to them. Um, so I'm biracial, a dual citizen. Um, I was born in India and grew up uh, spending my childhood both in uh, India and in central Kansas. Um, and both sides of my family uh, I would consider agriculturalists. Mm -hmm. My family in India grows food on plantations. Um, and in Kansas, my grandparents, my white grandparents, uh, grew food, foraged for food, uh, and sold at farmer's markets uh, to make a living during their retirement. 
And so I've always been interested in local food systems, sustainable food systems, and have really approached that topic from a cross-cultural, cross-racial background. Um, And so when I was in graduate school uh, pursuing a degree in anthropology, I was interested in racial inequality in the U.S., Um, but just personally, myself, I was joining into uh, local food movement events and trying to get into that movement uh, just to link into my family's history. And that was honestly pretty frustrating for me, and I preface that by saying that I'm somebody who often passes as white, um, mm-hmm. who has thin privilege, who in many ways is should be welcomed into that movement, but I felt very othered. Um, felt like the experiences of my family, um, you know, for them, growing food was something we enjoyed, but it wasn't anything that brought social capital or privilege. Um, and it often was backbreaking labor. So coming into the local food movement and seeing real sort of fetishization of perfect produce and like perfect ecosystems and the sort of discourse that really didn't resonate with me. Um, it prompted me to explore, you know, why, why white folks in this movement um, were approaching food systems in such a different, um, through such a different lens than I was as a person of color. Um, so this article was part of a broader research project in which I looked at local food systems work in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, and what sort of ideologies were animating predominantly a white group of folks um, to enact uh, policies that encourage and incentivize, incentivize local food production within our cities um, and to explore how that work impacts communities of color. Yeah, no, and it's a, it's a very, very interesting article. And, and thank you so much for sharing your your personal perspective because as, as you say, a lot of what we do in research, it is something personal for, for many of us. So thank you for that. That brings an interesting background perspective to, to this piece. Um, so your Gastronomica article takes a critical stand towards the local food movement. But before we get into this, for listeners who might not be that familiar with the movement, how how would you define it? Yeah, so I can speak, I guess, specifically about what I consider the local food movement in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. And I think that that will ring true for folks in other contexts as well. Um, so in Kansas City, the local food movement has been booming for, oh, maybe 10, 15 years now. Um, so there are a number of nonprofits in the city who encourage food production and encourage folks to learn about how to produce their own food. Um, There is a thriving farm-to-table dining scene, uh, which means that pretty much every high-end restaurant in in this city um, advertises proudly the the local farmers that they've sourced their produce from. Um, There's an increasing number of urban farmers um, and local local organic farmers within the city who are raising livestock and and produce as well and value-added products. A uh, huge number of farmers markets, community gardens, urban orchards. Um, so a real emphasis on thinking about how our cities are designed and how can we have more food production within these cities? How can we get folks um, to engage in growing their own food? Um, and we see that process playing out in lots of different context in the U.S. um, and globally also. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think folks aren't necessarily as familiar with it as it plays out in Kansas City, but 
local food movement is taking off in the Midwest as well, not just our, um, you know, not just Seattle, San Francisco, New York, mm-hmm. the places we typically think about it happening. Yeah, no, definitely. And and we'll get into that that specific context. Um, but be, before we do, I wanted to um, talk a little bit more about the, the critical aspect of, of the local food movement. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of this, as you have mentioned, Um, the movement pushes us to eat locally and also counteract the transnational food industry, which arguably it's something that, that is a positive contribution to society, right? But right. then um, the movement has been subject to the subject of a lot of critical scholarship, such as your work, for example. So can you just um, introduce the, the listeners to some of the drawbacks of, of the movement? Or the yeah, criticism. I'll, right. I'll note a couple things um, while also noting that there, there's been a lot of scholarship on this, and I'm probably just going to touch on a few topics. Um, for one, what my work has specifically explored is that while we encourage um, urban agriculture and community gardens, that process has been shown to gentrify cities, to contribute to housing inequality um, and raising the cost of living so that folks who could potentially benefit from community gardens um, just aren't able to because uh, that amenity raises the price of their rent so drastically that they're pushed out um, into suburban space. So that's one major unintended consequence. Another um, cost, local food movement, um, importantly, places value on the fact that um, we have undervalued the price of growing good food, the price of sustainably um, nurturing our planet while we take food from it, um, the price that we pay the folks who harvest our food, all of that is very important. All of that in our current economic system drastically raises the price of food. Um, mm-hmm. So in many local markets, uh, the way that the local food movement currently um, works, that food is just not accessible um, to low-income consumers. Um, lots of folks, including me, have written about the whiteness of this movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that, that's just to say that a lot of spaces in which local food is sold and in which urban sustainability is, is talked about, um, those spaces feel culturally white, meaning that the food that we celebrate is often food for predominantly white upper-middle-class diets, um, the recipes we use. Um, the, the ways that we talk about interacting with the earth, those are all oftentimes privileged discourses. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I think about the way that we talk about getting your hands dirty, you know, the joy of digging in the soil. That sort of discourse really doesn't resonate with and can oftentimes feel really harmful to folks of color uh-huh. who um, whose populations have been enmeshed in colonialism and slavery and And, you know, they haven't had good relationships with the soil. Uh, so those are just a few, a few issues um, that I think about when we think about inequity in the food system, local food system. Yes, yes. And as you rightly mentioned, there has been a lot of, of scholarship about, about that. And many scholars, another uh, thing that I wanted to ask you is uh, the perspective. For example, uh, people like Julie Guthman underscore the color blindness of, of many mm-hmm. in, in the movement. And for example, I, I taught some of this work in courses 
And when we speak about color blindness as being something that's not the correct way to to approach these the problems of diversity and, and inclusion, I sometimes I get the response of what what is wrong with color blindness? Have you encountered similar reactions, or can can you talk a little bit about that the color blindness issue in the movement? Yeah, that's a great point um, because I think it is often the predominant response. Um, people think that color blindness is is a kind way to approach these issues, but really it can be quite harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what people think when they state color blindness is that they are saying it doesn't matter to me what color you are or what ethnicity or race you are. Um, I see all people the same. Mm-hmm. Um, when in reality, we really need to be seeing color and understanding that folks of color from different communities um, experience discrimination in very different ways uh, and in very particular ways. And that if we're talking about discrimination without seeing color, we're not seeing how folks are impacted and and are experiencing discrimination. So it really stalls the conversation, you know. Um, we need to see folks' histories and the ways that they are treated in our in our society to really understand how to make our food food system equitable. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. And it is, uh, as you mentioned, people say, oh, what is, what is wrong with not seeing color? They think that's, that's actually a, a good thing. But as you rightly mentioned, it's not necessarily the, the case. Right. So, so now thinking about this in the context of, of Kansas City, when I read your piece and just now as you were describing it, again, it's not a, I have not had the pleasure to, to visit but you, you describe it as this place that can be a local food paradise. So, um, but, but is this something that is accessible only for some, right? So can you tell us more about your experience in Kansas City um, with, with food in general and the local food movement and also um, to talk about the, the racial dynamics in the city? Right, so maybe I'll start with the racial geography because I think that importantly informs um, how folks should think about Kansas City. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a starkly segregated city, um, and I say that saying, you know, most U.S. cities are starkly segregated. The specific geography just varies. Um, But in Kansas City, a north-south line um, separates a white east side of the city and a a white west side of the city, sorry, Mm -hmm. and a black east side of the city. And that has impacted food insecurity, housing insecurity, educational inequalities, um, everything you can think of. So as the local food movement has grown, that has contributed to a rising influx of urban farmers coming in to east side neighborhoods, black neighborhoods, uh, where land is cheaper, housing is cheaper, um, and so it's a lot more profitable to start a farm on this side of town. Uh, And as folks have done that, the urban food system has grown and farm-to-table scene has grown. And that gives maybe a false impression of the whiteness of this movement when there is, in fact, a lot of urban agriculture that has been occurring for almost a century in Kansas City in black and brown communities. Um, So on the east side, a lot of folks have home gardens, have uh, small farms in their backyards. Mm-hmm. Uh, they distribute that food at churches and in social networks. Um, 
And really, that work is threatened um, by the way the current local food system works in Kansas City. Uh, because, as I said earlier, when we bring in um, white-led urban farm projects, that often contributes to a raise in rents and, mm-hmm. and folks are pushed out. Um, and folks of color who are growing food in their backyards, they, they often do not have the certifications or the social capital or the financial capital to produce, be producing in such a scale and a manner that allows them to access the local food markets that predominantly white growers are able to. So they're not able to sell at restaurants most of the time or to access institutional markets. So it's sort of a bifurcated movement in that there is this really strong legacy of black and brown folks growing food, providing for themselves in Kansas City. Um, but it's not highlighted in our food movement, and mm-hmm. it's actively those folks are actively disadvantaged in the way that our current local food policy works. Yes, no, um, and thank you for providing this great backdrop to what we'll be discussing next. We're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to talk more about the diversity work as a, as a response from the local food movement. The James Beard Foundation is a nonprofit with the mission to celebrate, nurture, and honor chefs and other leaders making America's food culture more delicious, diverse, and sustainable for everyone. And right now, it's working to respond to the dire situation the food and beverage community is in due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Restaurants, bars, and other independent food and beverage operations are often on the front lines of community revival. The majority of culinary community businesses have less than 500 employees, but collectively, this industry generates $1 trillion a year, 60 of which is pumped back into their local business communities. To help bring swift economic relief to these essential businesses, the James Beard Foundation launched a fund to provide micro-grants to independent food and beverage businesses in need. You can donate today at jamesbeard.org slash relief. Uh, okay, so we are back. This is Melissa Fuster from Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies in Fort Coralie. So before the break, we started talking about the intersection between race and food access, um, and also the, the, the complexities around that and, and uh, the consequences of, of the local food, the unintended consequences of the local food movement. So in your piece, Chaya, you talk about how uh, some of these uh, problematics around race and also color blindness are being addressed, uh, counteracted with what, you, what is called the diversity work. Mm-hmm. Diversity, uh, I think uh, nowadays, right, is this word that that has been thrown around um, without a clear definition sometimes. So can you define, uh, how is diversity defined in this context and what is diversity work? I think that's a good point. The word diversity is increasingly th- thrown around. Um, and I really think it can oftentimes be meaningless because there is no clear definition. Mm-hmm. Um, So I think by way of explaining that, I'll explain diversity work. Uh, Diversity work is when an organization or a movement um, or an office, they're faced with a critique. You know, they're having problems with inclusion, um, with making sure that there are voices of many different communities represented in the organization. And so they undertake a sort of programmatic response to address that. 
Um, and so that often means bringing in an outside consultant to talk about, you know, how do we, quote unquote, diversify um, our programs, um, having a statement on their website or in their organization that says we support diversity, we support uh, folks of all backgrounds and income levels. Um, and having these sorts of conversations, um, they, they really aren't helpful because, like, I, like you noted, diversity doesn't really mean anything. It, there's no way to really quantify that other than to to list out the the sort of um, the sort of intent that you have. Uh, so I think that when organizations are enacting diversity work, uh, it becomes problematic because the idea then is we just need to prove to people that their perceptions of us are wrong rather than actually um, changing the organizational structure that was leading to inequities in the first place. Um, so it might often mean bringing in more folks of color into meetings, mm -hmm. um, bringing more folks of color into um, programmatic events. But bringing folks of color into these spaces doesn't mean at all that folks of color, um, that their voices are heard, that their voices have an impact in the organization or in the programs. Um, so just simply having people there really doesn't alter the underlying structure of inequity. Um, yeah, yeah, and uh, it's interesting that I think also when when you when we speak about diversity and diversity work, it's a similar thing with uh, with the colorblind concept that on the surface is you you can think on the surface that that that's a good thing. But then when you really dig into what it actually means in practice, that's when it gets very problematic. And and you mentioned in your piece, it's exactly what, what you were saying, that it becomes something of uh, of counting bodies of color, right? That, you oh, I'm not, a, there is not, uh, it's not as white as people think. Look at these people of color consuming these foods, right? Right. Um without thinking, well, how differently could our organization work if we, if we really thought through how our organization is structured to exclude certain voices, you know, there's no real accounting for how decisions are made in an organization, for how programmatic focuses are, are chosen. It's just simply how do we get more folks of color in the room? And oftentimes that doesn't even include, like, uh, class variation, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so simply having folks of color does not mean you're having a diversity of voices. And it's very hard to get a representative sample of, of the folks you're serving um, when you have a limited amount of spaces for voices of color in your room. Um, so that approach really, it's not going to be a transformative one. There's simply no way um, to alter organizational structures that are inherently doing damage just by bringing in um, a few new voices. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, and as you mentioned, if the new voices are counted just based on, on skin color and you don't take into account other diversity, right, within the people of color, that, that makes it even more problematic. Right. Um, and I'm, you know, it, it's interesting because in your article you, you talk to 
For this study, you talked to white members of the local food movement, and you also talked to the, to the black communities. And I am wondering if you can, well, can you speak more about how your research was received by, by these two groups? Was, was there any pushback, for example, or anecdotes that, that you can share with us? Yeah, there was a lot of pushback. Um, I would say, so I worked very closely with um, members of black and brown communities in Kansas City for this work. And I do not claim at all that that is representative of all black and brown communities <laughs> in Kansas City. That is a huge, that's, that's a huge segment of the population. It's very hard for me to speak um, definitively on that. But for the folks I worked with in those communities, um, I shared and privileged their voices. And I think that off, that was well-received because often that's, that's not happening in discussions of sustainability in the city. Um, with, with white-led organizations, there was a lot of pushback. There is a lot of pushback mm -hmm. on this work. Um, I think particularly within... Um, progressive social movements, and that's, again, painting with a broad brush, but I think that a lot of folks within the local food movement would identify as politically progressive, mm -hmm. whatever that may mean. Um, <laughs> I think within progressive organizations, it can feel pretty offensive to then be accused of, of doing harm with your work, mm -hmm. um, which I, I, I don't think anybody is is um, immune from that, right? We're all making decisions on a daily basis that we enact with the best of intent, hoping that it will help others. Um, but there are unintended consequences, and it's important to be continually assessing um, how the most marginalized folks are affected by our decisions. You know, whether we're politically progressive and or, or not. Um, and so I think that there's just in particular within our local food movement, um, folks who are doing this work with really great intentions. You know, they want to bring good food to our city. They want to nourish the earth. Um, they want to connect with others over a meal. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to then hear um, that some marginalized folks feel feel left out or feel, um, feel like they are being um, marginalized within this space. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, I, I can appreciate that. And again, and, uh, I... I hope listeners can can actually read the, the piece because you do have some uh, interesting excerpts from from those interviews where that pushback and that um, you know realization that I'm not a racist. Look at diversity is uh, is really interesting how you how you work at it um, in the piece. Um, I also appreciated how in your article you underscore how the local food movement discourses place the burden of being included on the excluded, particularly the marginalized African-American community. When you talk to, to black residents, how, how did they perceive these, this ex exclusion? For example, did you find people that internalized some of these notions? Um, for example, when I, in my work, uh, uh, that I do also work with uh, communities of colors in terms of nutrition and food access, sometimes I people repeat some of the ideas, for example, of how we need to be educated to eat better food or to buy local food. 
again, putting the onus of, of education and being included on them. Did you, did you find anything like that in, in your conversations? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. There, I think of it somewhat as internalized depression. Um, I think that this discourse that, you know, it's the onus is on people of color, on low-income folks to do better, feed themselves better, mm -hmm. be healthier, um, care about the earth more. I think that that discourse is so pervasive that it is very, very hard to distance yourself from it or, or see outside that lens at all. Um, and so it is really painful. I heard a lot of low-income folks, um, black and brown folks, when I would interview them, say, you know, they would preface their conversations because they thought that I was a local food advocate and say, mm -hmm. you know, oh, I'm so sorry. I bought canned, I bought canned tomatoes last week. I know I should be growing that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which, which is hard to, really, really hard to hear because no, you know, they're, I think in my envisioning of a, of a functioning, healthy, equitable food system, there's space for folks to be guy, buying canned tomatoes. And, mm -hmm. you know, we don't all need to be, uh, you know, four, four star chefs or whatever, yes, very excited definitely. about cooking to be good ecological stewards. Um, so yeah, I heard a lot of that internalization and I think that that further stigmatizes folks, you know, when one, they're dealing with inability to access food, um, economic constraints, racialized discrimination, and then this in, in internalized feeling of inferiority for not, not doing better. Mm -hmm. I think that that's quite a bit for folks of color to be contending with. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, it sort of raises the bar that is no... You know, even if it's not a canned tomato, it, it's not any tomato. It has to be an organic tomato. So you add in a local tomato. So there's these other added adjectives that make it sometimes unattainable for for right. some people to eat the way they, they feel they should be eating. Um, right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah, and even on top of that, um, not even just any tomato, it's you know, the sexiest tomato at market is now is now a thing. You know, the most perfect blemish-free tomato. We have these increasing levels of, of class distinction placed on our food um, that just are inherently racialized at every level that makes barriers for folks of color, low-income folks of color particularly. Um, it's just astronomical. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, another thing that, that your article does that I also find is uh, very interesting is how the, the exclusion of black residents is highlighted by comparisons with these new immigrants. You talk about a model immigrant, a model minority, who are seen as contributors to diversity and also uh, praised as the, for their appreciation right, of these local food offerings. Uh, I know, and you, you mentioned in your piece that your research did not explicitly include these groups, but do you have a sense of, of the views of these communities in regards to how they are viewed by the local food movement? Yeah, uh, so I do mention, and I will say for folks who haven't read it, that I'm very careful to note that I was not the right person to do that research because I think particularly folks with refugee status in the state have been through so many layers of harm um, 
to then be discussing very sensitive racialized issues with mm-hmm. somebody who's not of their community. It just wasn't possible for me, um, in particular as a researcher, to do that work, but somebody should do that work. My sense is, you know, I think these refugee agricultural partnership programs are great uh, because folks who are excluded from of the economy when they come over here with refugee status, a lot of times they do know how to farm. Mm-hmm. And that to have a segment of the economy that, that they can thrive in, that's great. Uh, I do know that many of the communities here in Kansas City are, probably in other cities, are uh, struggle to speak and read English, um, coming as a second or third language for them. So I'm not sure if they are aware of these mm-hmm. ways that they're contrasted with other folks of color in the city or not. I I really can't speak to that, but I can say that I doubt that this comparison is being made on purpose as a as a vindictive sort of comparison mm-hmm. by um, white local food advocates. I absolutely think that by bringing up the diversity of the movement that they see, I think that these folks are trying to be inclusive and trying to be accepting and broaden um, broaden the horizons of the local food movement. But I do think that it's, it's really not a great avenue for us to talk about um, racial equity in our food system if it becomes a contest of who is the best at growing vegetables <laughs> and who likes cooking vegetables more. You know, that really sidesteps the question of who has the mental space and energy within a racist economy and society to engage in the local food movement. I think that that would be a more transformative question for Mm -hmm. us to be considering. Yeah, yeah. And also, um, I want to bring back something that you said uh, earlier on, that uh, not everybody has this uh, beautiful... (laughs) A relationship with the land and getting their their hands dirty, uh, as we tend to assume, and um, it seems that some of the folks that you interviewed from the local food movement have these idealized notions of of these immigrants loving to farm and and loving locally grown food, when in reality, that might not be something shared by by everyone. Right, exactly, uh, and it was interesting approaching this work as. As an Indian American, folks also thought that a lot of white folks thought that I was the same, you know, that I really loved getting my hands dirty <laughs> and that this idea of being connected with the land um, was something that would resonate with me as somebody who grew up um, in India. When really growing up in India meant that I saw a lot of folks who were literally breaking their back mm-hmm. to to make less than pennies for for their produce. Um, And those are folks who were intimately tied to the land, you know? A lot of peasant folks are in in India, um, where I'm from, are, they're farming every day of the year, their whole lives, um, and they are not making enough to live. And I hold that um, in tandem with, you know, experiences with my grandparents in, in the States, hunting for morel mushrooms and, you know, liking to grow food. But I do think that we need to consider both of those things together just because you come from an agrarian culture or a society where more folks are growing their food does not mean that that this is a 
valued pastime that brings you joy. Mm-hmm. You know, there's many different ways to approach <laughs> the act of cultivating the land. Yeah, no, definitely, and it, I, it's good that you're, you're bringing that uh, that perspective because it is forgotten many times. Mm-hmm. So, um, to to start wrapping up, um, I wanted to to talk with you about some of the difficult aspects of this critical scholarship is sometimes focusing too much on what is wrong, mm-hmm. um, but at times not offering alternatives or solutions. So if I may push you, um, have you encountered positive examples of diversity work or other responses from the local food movement that, that you feel that truly promotes social justice? Absolutely. Um, so to start with, I will say that although I did get a lot of pushback from this work, there are really great folks who have shared this piece and other pieces have written and engaged with it and read it, even though it made them uncomfortable and mad. <laughs> and I think that that's what all of us should be doing, really, in the local food movement and any aspect of being a citizen in our society. We should be reading things that make us mad and engaging with those ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that's a positive thing for folks in the local food movement to be doing. Um, I think supporting work happening in black and brown communities is very important uh, and I've seen a, I've seen folks begin to do that more and more um, because when you have any idea for a community food project I think it is highly likely that the community that you're trying to place that project in already has something like that that could use your resources or could use your attention or your support in grant work um, or or just in you know publicity And I think more of us should be doing that first, you know, reaching out to the neighborhoods that we hope to be working in allyship with and asking them what actually they're doing so far and how you could best be of help. Um, there are a couple organizations in um, Kansas City and beyond that I've seen that are beginning to expand this sort of myopic focus on just hunger, which mm-hmm. I think is really incredible and important. Um, Hunger is a symptom of a larger problem of inequity and racialized violence in our country. And I think more, the more that we can use food to talk about those issues, to bring more people into discussions of, of how hunger is just, you know, it's operating in tandem with housing insecurity and with educational inequality and, and the mass incarceration system. The more that we can use food to highlight that, I think, the more transformative the local food system can be. Yes, yes, definitely. And food definitely has that, that the beauty of food is exactly that, that it can help uh, build bridges, not only create the, that separation. Um, so with that, I want to thank you so much for, for your piece uh, and also for taking the time to talking with us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciated it. Thank you. And to our listeners, if you would like to learn more about this research or other work featured in Gastronomica, visit gastronomica.org, where you can access the spring 2020 issue for free until the end of this year. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Gastronomica, the journal for food studies, is an international interdisciplinary journal that presents new and original research advances our understanding of compelling issues in the world of food, 
and invites critical debate and commentary across diverse audiences. We invite you to read and submit your scholarly and creative work. More details, uh, more, more details are available in our website. Gastronomica is supported by the University of California Press, and on behalf of the Journal's Editorial Collective, I want to thank the Heritage Radio Network, Meant to be Eaten, and its host, Coral Lee, for allowing us to share this mini-series of podcasts. Meant to be Eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.